It's such a heightened, intense time for young people where you're navigating a lot of these questions for the very first time. It just makes me really nostalgic for like the 19 year old version of me. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Layla Darabi. And I'm Lori Edelman. For this episode, we watched The Sex Lives of College Girls and asked Senti Sojwal, is everyone hooking up without me? Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging. I've actually been watching a lot of television lately, and I don't know how this happened, but I watched the entire series of Wednesday. Wow. Impressive. Yes, I did it in one day over the holiday weekend for Thanksgiving, and it is the zoomed-in story of Wednesday Adams, the beloved character from the Adams Family movies played by a young Christina Ricci back in the day. But now it's a TV series. And Tim Burton actually is the executive producer and, and directed half of the eight episodes, which you can really tell it has a very Burton aesthetic. It's like Disney does spooky kind of feel. I can't say that it's the world's best show, but I found it charming in the same way I found the show that we're going to talk about today charming in that it's about someone going away to school, moving into the dorms, and trying to find their people. And it's about the extreme loner character of Wednesday Adams. So it's a little exhausting in all the callbacks to the Adams Family show and movies. The character of Wednesday Adams is extremely one note. She's literally shot and lit as though she's black and white and colorless. She's very monochrome. But... <laughs> I, I will say there's something that I can't resist about a show that's about a young person who thinks that they're satisfied being a loner and that dissects the cliques of high school of young people. There is something about the mother-daughter relationship that kind of sucked me in. And it really reminded me of my mom once telling me that uh, she thought I was really sad as a teenager, and I would have described myself as really angry. Aww. I think that there's something maybe every teen daughter can relate to there. One of the reasons I watched it is because I saw the main actor, Jenna Ortega, give interviews saying that she was glad that a Latina was finally playing Wednesday Adams because Gomez Adams is Mexican. Right. The character of Gomez is played by Luis Guzman, who's amazing. It's worth watching. And also Christina Ricci as an adult plays a character. And so for that, I think it's worth checking out. If you're sort of coping from the food coma after a family feast or otherwise just couch ridden for a weekend, can't hurt to pop on Netflix. I love it. Great recommendation and very fitting for the time that we're in and the show that we're watching talking about young women dealing with their growing pains, either by being emo and goth, or as in the show that we are about to watch, taking on some different personas. But we'll get into that. I will keep it short. I am also binging this week. And what I am binging is the Belgian singer slash rapper slash dance phenomenon Strome. And the reason for that is because a friend couldn't make his concert and we got some last minute tickets. And I had a ball and I kind of was sleeping on Strome. I had heard some like techno beat <laughs> remixes of his songs that I probably danced to in the club in my college days. I'm going to go ahead and recommend everyone binge listen to Strome music. It's a good time. It was such positive vibes in that venue. And it was just all of the French speakers of New York City hanging out with each other, which is a good time lately, as you know. I am not a Francophile, as we discovered in the early days of our cringe watching, but I do love to dip my toes and what a toe dip it was. Go check out Strome. He's of Rwandan and Belgian descent and really plays also a lot to sort of the African vibes of his music as well. And this was really apparent in his live show. So I really appreciated that combination of sounds as well. Well, that sounds delightful. I love a spontaneous concert. <laughs> it really was good. It was fun. And it's very fitting because today we are talking about college girls, college hookups. And we're also specifically talking about 
not only the sex lives of college girls, but the topic of hookups and casual sex, which this show deals with a lot. And the reason that we thought this would be really fun to talk about in the context of cringe watchers is because feminism has had a long and strange relationship to this topic, to the topic of hooking up, casual sex. There was a while in the 90s and probably many times over before that where hookup panic was kind of a big topic of conversation within feminism. And I'll say for kind of my generation where it really peaked the most was when I was doing slut walk organizing in New York City, which was about 10 years ago. And there were a lot of discussions, you know, is this a legitimate conversation for feminists to weigh in on? Should feminists be on one side of this or the other sort of defending this idea of sexual liberation or sluts? Is it too racially specific? Is it too frivolous. Like we heard a lot of sort of existential questions come up about the feminist movement when this topic came about. Yes. And I think that if there's one thing that unites feminist generations, it's that judgmental attitude they have towards every other generation or we have. Because I don't think casual sex is a new thing. It wasn't for our generation. It wasn't for previous generations. It's the way we frame it and the way we judge it that seems to shift. And I also think the media plays a big role in this because we love a think piece and spilling ink over trying to figure out how young people are thinking about sex, relationships, family, lives. And I think that's what this show gets better than feminist discourse. We have a lot of conversations on this show about how some of the entertainment that we consume keeps it light, doesn't dive in, and doesn't take risks on all of the serious topics. There is something to be said for addressing big topics like sex and sexuality on TV, because we accept that it's going to be surface. And so I think TV shows like the one that we're discussing today have permission to skate at the surface of these topics and maybe dive into issues in a less judgmental way than, say, one generation of feminists dissecting another. That's really well said. And, you know, one of the major premises of our podcast is that, you know, sex as a topic is not frivolous. It's serious. It can be silly. It can be surface. But it also can be life or death. It also is political. So I think we really like to touch on all those different sides of the spectrum to kind of give a more full picture about issues of sex and sexuality than what people usually hear. And so this show happens to fall on the lighter side of that. So just a little bit of background, Sex Lives of College Girls, it was created by Mindy Kaling and Justin Noble. It very much has Mindy Kaling's prints all over it. It's very comedic, very surface, and it's really about the antics of for college sweet mates who really in real life would not know each other <laughs> very well 99% of the time. They are racially diverse. They come from different economic backgrounds. They come from different sports teams. And um, there's just like a lot of diversity that typically would maybe be a barrier to all of them coming together and living together. But it's a television show, so they can do whatever they want. And they live together and they are exploring their sexuality together and, and sharing that with one another. And it's quite a positive light show. Definitely. And it's very Gen Z. We talk about this in the episode. You see that in the fact that they have dating apps, which means that even if they're hooking up casually, they pre-plan them with dating apps. And you see that in their attitudes around sexuality, around gender identity. For this episode, we discussed the opening episode of season three of The Sex Lives of College Girls, which is on HBO Max. There have since been subsequent episodes released. So if you're following the show, you know that some of the questions that we asked ourselves during this episode, like... Will Peyton get her hoe period? Is Whitney's relationship exclusive? Have since been answered by the show. But we think this is a good point to dive in. And as Lori said, we had the perfect guest. Senti Sojwal is a longtime friend of this show. She used to write for Feministing. She actually ran our interviews column and famously interviewed Lizzo and many, many other amazing feminists, oftentimes early in their career. She is currently the media relations director at the Center for Popular Democracy, and she is co-founder of the Asian American Feminist Collective. She's also just one of the sweetest and funniest 
best people I know, both in real life and online. Follow her on Twitter. She's hilarious. We talk about that in the interview as well. And we hope you enjoy our episode with Senti Social. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, Senti. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, especially to talk about one of my favorite shows. Yes, you're the perfect person to discuss sex lives of college girls. I cannot wait to dig into this really outlandish show with you. Our plan for today is to talk about season two, episode one. And we have selected a few scenes, a few specific plot lines, because there's a lot of intersecting plot lines in this show that we especially want to talk to you about. Our plan is to kind of take turns bringing those out. Why don't we jump into our first topic? Let's do it. I think we would really not be smart if we did not kick off with Bella. We need to talk about Bella and her explicit hoeing. So Bella is one of the four main characters of this show. She is played by the actress Amrit Kaur, and her full name is Bella Malhotra. And she is really, I think, one of the characters where I really feel Mindy Kaling's presence in this show. Uh, She's the most explicit about seeking out casual sex and hookups, although like her motivation for why is not always clear. So sometimes she's like explicitly gawking at hot guys and washboard abs. And sometimes she's being like quite strategic, like almost transactionally so, as when she famously gave six hand jobs to get accepted into a comedy magazine. Uh, So she also opens this newest season, popping out in her underwear, chilling in the dorm room for no apparent reason. So she's sort of portrayed as this kind of like wacky, quite sex positive character. She's also South Asian. And in a way, like this personality that she has seems to be kind of like deliberately going against stereotypes, right? Of like the modest or like sexually stunted South Asian woman. So Senti, we need to know, like first and foremost, what is going on with Bella? What do you make of this character? Why is she written this way? Is this like the South Asian representation that we are all looking for? Like what's going on? I love Bella so much. I see a lot of myself in her. I think you're so right that this is a character where we can really see Mindy Kaling's influence and maybe what she sort of wanted her college experience to be like. I feel like doing a show about college is such a way for you to maybe relive or create experiences that you never got to have. And in the case of Bella, the part that I love about her so much is that I think when there was such like fear and this cultural conversation about hookup culture on college campuses. And it was like, ring the alarm. Like, this is so horrible for everybody. Like, as if having sexual freedom and expression in your early 20s, the first time you're away from your parents' house, the first time you're able to discover sexuality on your own terms can also not be an experience that's like profoundly exciting and joyful and fun. What I love about Bella is that her agenda is really just to like have as many experiences as possible to use her sexuality for the first time in her life as a way that's just defined by her. I love that she doesn't really give a shit about finding a boyfriend. She doesn't really care about building emotional intimacy. Maybe we'll see some developments there this season. I think that would be a good character arc for her. But mostly I love that she's so interested in exploration and having fun and having as much sex as possible and in a way that genuinely feels fun and empowering to watch. I feel like it's not a new think piece that how are the young people hooking up How do they understand relationships? Do they even have relationships anymore? Because I feel like those think pieces started with millennials and these kids are so much younger. Like, is this Gen Z? There have been think pieces recently about how Gen Z doesn't even have as much sex as uh, previous generations. So it's really interesting to see some of the pearl clutching reactions to this show as though this is a new concept that college kids can have intimacy without relationships. Totally, Layla. And I mean, Santi, when you say like this reminds you of maybe what Mindy Kaling would have wanted to experience. That really resonated for me because to your point, Layla, this somewhat feels like a millennial's idea of a college student's sex life. Like, exactly. I don't know if 
there are a lot of college students that watch the show or really we are more the target demographic, but there's something that like really clicked for me when you said that, Sensi. The brand of sex positivity that Bella is bringing to this show does feel kind of like a little bit off generation, given like that ambivalence, Layla, that you're mentioning about like Gen Z today. And we know there's like celibacy TikTok and everything. But I also really enjoy Bella. Like it is an enjoyable representation. And I feel like in this episode in particular that we're talking about, Bella hooks up with like her magazine friend who sort of had a slow start, but ended up defending her uh, against a really disgusting assault that she experienced uh, in the space of the magazine. Um, So I'm curious, Senti, like, do you feel like her motivations for seeking hookups are like really important? Are they well represented in the show? Do you feel like modern feminists are, are like, okay with her sexual choices or are they really like outside of the pale for like how feminism is operating today? Well, I think it's interesting that she in season one, we see her just sort of have as much sex as possible. And now I think we see her gravitating towards this one male character who actually provided her like a safe space and was like a listening ear to her. But she's also not super attracted to him. And I think doesn't see him as someone that she could actually date or like could be a real presence in her life for intimacy. So I think like as of right now, it feels like her motivations are very much the same. Her motivation is like, well, this is just another sort of sexual experience that I'm like adding to my bucket. But I think that we're going to see developments in that relationship. And to your point about like, is feminist understandings of these motivations or how we can apply those ideas? I think it's like, If you want to have sex for the sake of having sex because you're 19 and just got out of your parents' house and probably lived a sheltered Indian life with your conservative parents, then like to me, that is liberatory. There just doesn't really have to be reasoning beyond that. And I wish that like we could see more of that. A lot of the other characters, I think, struggle with sexuality in different ways. I think that we have Leighton, who's like closeted queer woman for the whole first season. And then you have Whitney, who's in this pretty bad relationship with someone who clearly has a lot of power over her. And then I think you have Bella, who's like the character that represents sexual freedom, but it's in a way that's very like one note. So I think I am hoping to see more developments there for what she can learn about sexuality and also like what actual sexual pleasure and joy partaking in those things can mean for her in a way that's more meaningful than just like having sex to have sex. The thing I also find really relatable about her is I know this has been true for me, that enabling friend, that friend who's outrageous and over the top and wants all the experiences, then the rest of the friend group is in that wake. She wants to go to all the parties. She wants to fuck all the guys. She wants to have all the experiences. And I feel like I've had those people in my life who are a little unhinged, but who helped me loosen up a little bit in those settings like the first semester of college. You already mentioned, Senti, Whitney's dating life. In season one, Whitney is this star athlete who's having a really inappropriate and power dynamic abusive relationship with her coach. That all blows up at the end of the first season. And by this semester, when they're back from Thanksgiving break, she's now hooking up with Kanan, who we know because he works at Sips, the coffee shop with her friend Kimberly. He's uh, funny and smart, likes her for her. He's part of a black fraternity. He introduces her to a different kind of world. And she's having a different kind of hookup. It's a quasi-relationship hookup. But at the same time, her dilemma seems to be in this season that she doesn't have the direction that everyone around her has. Everyone around her seems to know their major, their career path, what they're going to do. And in a lot of ways, she's rebelling against her politician mother and her very rigid college athlete lifestyle. And she jokes to her friends that she wants to just sleep in and relax and have fun this semester. And they're all about internships and resumes and things. And so first of all, Lori and I had a debate about how serious this relationship is. Do you think that they're exclusive? I don't know if they've ever talked about that. And so I think if you've never talked about it, you have to assume you're not. Right. But I don't think she knows that. Interesting. Interesting. 
the thing that I the show seems to be setting up is the idea of all the expectations on the shoulders of young people and plotting your whole life and your career and what is college? Is it the liberal arts ideal of just letting knowledge float into your skull while you're having real life experiences? Or is it the resume stacking work path that a lot of driven people seem to be tracking? I think I can definitely relate to that feeling of feeling like everybody else around you knows what the fuck they're doing and has things sorted out. And I think especially for a character like Whitney, who you said, you know, has dealt with, I think, being in the spotlight her whole life, obviously has this very successful kind of overbearing mom who has probably chosen for her a lot of the things that she thinks her daughter should be doing. Whitney sort of comes to school in her identity as soccer, and I think definitely feels like she's under so much pressure. And I would love to see her sort of navigate more, I think, the realities of race at this college and what that means for her. I think it's interesting. You see a lot of Kimberly's character navigate class in a way that I think is really poignant and not something that you see a lot on TV when it comes to young people. With Whitney, I also have to assume that a lot of the pressure that she feels and like some of her discomfort is tied to her being a young Black woman at a predominantly white institution where the pressure is really immense and where she has to perform twice as good, twice as hard, not only because of the fact that she's a Black woman at this white institution, but because you know that her mom probably puts a lot of pressure on her and she feels, I think, a lot of that burden. And so I think that's like a highly relatable struggle. And I think one that a lot of college students go through and definitely one that I think I've experienced like many times in my life at different points. Yeah, I think that is so true. And we will talk about Kimberly's financial situation because I'm aghast. But one of the reasons that Layla and I kind of were having some fun going back and forth about Whitney and Kanon's relationship is because it reminded me of college in this specific way, which is like, they started out as explicitly casual. Like Whitney's like, I am going to push myself to have this one night stand. Like I met a hot guy. I summoned the courage. Like I pretended to be a confident girl so that I could like have this experience with this hot guy. And, you know, a couple episodes later, they're sort of in this undefined situationship. They're both perfectly nice people. They're both black in a predominantly white institution, which sometimes, as we know, like is enough. You're like, oh, we're the same here. Should we just like, but, you know, they're going to parties together. They're hanging out with each other's friends. They can get jealous uh, when each other are talking to other people. But at the end of the day, like for me, this plot line about Whitney being uncertain about where she's going It's like also a way to sort of show that her emotional needs are not necessarily fully fulfilled in this situationship. Like she's got these bigger issues that she's dealing with in her life. She confides to this man that she's sleeping with and he's like kind of a little bit talking some light shit to his friend at a party in a way that like feels like an emotional betrayal to her, like hurts her feelings. That really rang true for me as someone thinking back on college. I was like, did I really know how to navigate my emotional needs even in casual situations? Like Whitney's smiling through that pain and, you know, I just watched episode one, so she didn't speak up yet about this. Maybe she will. But there's just something about this idea of like the feeling of whether we deserve to even feel hurt or disappointed by someone who we're not in like a formal capital B boyfriend girlfriend relationship with and that I thought was like really beautifully done. And that's a question that will follow you all the way through your 30s if you let it. (laughs) (laughs) And beyond. It's funny. I unplanned went to my college campus this weekend because one of my best friends from college has a half sister who's 25 years younger than she is. And we started college and we met 25 years ago this year as freshmen in college. And it was so funny to be touring the dorms, to be seeing her experience, the the younger sister's experience, which is totally different from ours, but also to be walking past all the dorms where all of my little situationships took place. What really, really made me feel old a few months ago is that the very first guy I hooked up with in college posted on Facebook a photo of our campus, and I realized it was because he was dropping off his daughter this year. 
So his <laughs> that that my first little Whitney Canaan situation <laughs> is now is now the father of a college age person. It really took me back, and it wasn't a relationship. It's not something I think about often, but because of that little moment in my own little existential crisis about where am I? Am I old enough to have a college freshman? I've been thinking back a lot about that first encounter. We used to call it the fuck chop relationship. Those relationships that take place uniquely in closed spaces, in dorm rooms. Like you don't spend time with each other's friends. It didn't even mean you were just sleeping together. But, you know, there's something about dorm life and living on campus, especially your first time away from home, that can be very separate from the real world. And I think that's one of the funny things about college campuses. It's almost what they're intending to do. I think the intent is academic, but the the side effect is all of our relationships. It's funny too, because in college, I feel like you think you're such a little grown up because it's your first time out in the world on your own. And I was a boyfriend girl in college. I didn't really have a lot of random hookups. And my hoe phase came much later, which I think was probably better for my sex life. But I had two serious boyfriends in college. And I remember like, you know, we would like sleep together in our little like twin beds. And like, you just feel like you're a little adult. Lori, you're so right. That question of how much can I rely on this person or how much do I share or like, what is real intimacy or what are we even supposed to give each other? How comfortable am I supposed to be with you? What am I allowed to ask for more? Like college is really a place where those things happen for many people for the very first time. All these characters navigate a very familiar discomfort to me in ways that I can just see so much in myself. And I think it's also interesting how not that many TV shows are about college. It's such a heightened, intense time for young people where you're navigating a lot of these questions for the very first time. And it's such a rich playground for exploring like these different aspects of our identities and ways that we can look back on and see that we were becoming ourselves in those moments. That's one of the reasons I love the show too, is it just makes me really nostalgic for like the 19 year old version of me, who I think I see in different ways with all of these characters. I love that you said that, Senti, and same. And actually, there was a really interesting quote that we found in prepping for this episode from the co-creator with Mindy Kaling, who's Justin Noble of this show. And he actually gave an interview where he said, the thing that I always heard when I wanted to do a show about college was that a lot of people would say, there's no stakes because college is just a time where you let go and you learn and you're in an incubator. I always disagreed because stakes are relative to a character and no one cares more about the stakes of their situation than someone who has their entire life ahead of them and anything can derail it. And I thought that was really insightful. And to your point, Senti, maybe guess at some of the reasons why we don't see more shows about this time period, because it can kind of, you know, bring out some nostalgia from folks, but also the sense of like, oh, well, they're young kids. And I really am glad that they both take these characters seriously enough that we're all sort of invested and we can kind of see a little bit of ourselves in them. But they also keep it quite light in a way. There are just a ton of plot lines that they throw at us in this show. You mentioned, Senti, the financial issues that Kimberly's going through. And I really want to talk about this with both of you because it's one of the storylines that I'm kind of struggling with the most in a way. But basically, after cheating on an exam last season, we find out this season that Kimberly, well, we found out last season that Kimberly had her scholarship revoked. In this new season, we find out that uh, she took the senior boys of the entire fraternity where the cheating was going on with her. So she's in debt and they're blacklisted from a number of fraternities. But Bella suggests Kimberly, quote, sells feet pics to make up the difference, which is a whopping total of $138,000 over the course of four years. But Kimberly is determined to not tell her family, handle this on her own. So she takes a job writing captions for an Australian reality show, which was probably the number one laugh out loud moment that I've had for this entire show is when they showed that Australian reality show and Kimberly trying to like write up the captions of a sobbing Australian reality TV star. Amazing. Jessica has just made the bloody agonizing decision to dump Braxton. And now she deals with the consequences. <laughs> you know, it's like a game, right? But it's also like funny, little, you know? What and the I'm fuck is she saying? But creator Justin Noble has also stated that 
this plot line is reflective of the true hardships that exist for people who are underwater financially when they're trying to stay in an institution like this where the cost is exorbitant. So I'm curious, first and foremost, how much does class play a role in our ability not only to like enjoy and experience college, but also like have a good sex life in college? Like at one point, Kimberly almost doesn't go out because she's doing her captioning job. We know that happens a ton. So like, what is the connection between this plotline and like the sex lives of college girls? Class touches everything. It colors your whole experience. It's like a lens through which you view and experience the world and how other people see you. I love that the show is exploring this, but I really need them to go deeper. We sort of see in a surface level way how this affects her, but what I want to see is more of that question of how does this affect how she sees herself in relation to these three close friends. And I don't think that I have a concrete understanding of how this does affect her sex life or how she sees herself as a sexual person or even who she has access to or like who she is attracted to or who she might date or be with in a real way. It's almost there, but I'm really hoping that we sort of can go a level deeper as the show goes on. One of the things I kept thinking when she gave the grand total for her entire college career of how much money she would need to raise to pay tuition is what a class differentiator it is once you graduate. Because yeah, there are pressures, there are haves and have nots on campus. But in some ways, once you get there, if you have financial aid, if you're on the meal plan, there's some level of equalizing, maybe not equalizing, there's a balance to being on campus that I think is a raft in the middle of a financial storm for a lot of people. As I just said, it's 25 years since I started college, 20 plus years since I finished. And, you know, most people I know are just now paying it off or still paying it off, then went to grad school, racked up more debt. And I feel like Kimberly is someone who's really going to be feeling this for generations. I get annoyed at how quickly she comes up with schemes that could really make up that difference. Because when you're 18, $20,000 is enormous. Yeah, for sure. And that scene with the lone predator, like I'm glad that they included that as well, because that rang true. It's not just that you now owe this tuition, but also you become vulnerable to these like really exploitative financial schemes and setups. When Kimberly got into this scheme, it was in part because she was hooking up with her friend's brother. He was part of this fraternity. He got her into this legacy file of old tests that the members of this white majority grandfathered in fraternity had access to and she didn't have access to. So through a wealthy friend, she got access to this special tool. And we learn at the beginning of the semester that she's lost her scholarship. She's financially struggling for the rest of her life. The guy who helped her get access to the test has just transferred and has a new car. So the consequences are totally different. That's a really great point. And yeah, I'm also really sad that that guy isn't back because he was pretty fine. Seriously, bring it, bring him back. Can we have some uh, dream sequences? <laughs> they had really great sex. Yes, yes. <laughs> we got a flashback, something. I think it's a good point too, Layla, that it's kind of questionable that these women would all get along being of such different backgrounds. There were maybe three weeks in my freshman year where I hung out with like the super bougie people. And then I was like, oh, I cannot hang. You guys are driving your BMWs to the mall and going to like legal seafood. And that's not my thing. It's not happening. Let's move on to another favorite topic at college, which is nudity. I think this whole season starts out with Bella in her underwear practicing how comfortable she is with her body. Kimberly, I miss you bitches. Come here. Hey, Bella. Uh, sorry, where are your clothes? Oh, gone about 15 minutes ago. Got comfortable and made myself some snacks. My parents are like obsessed with me wearing clothes at home. But at the end of this episode, there is a naked run, which also, I don't know about your campuses, but I went to a very uh, love your body crunchy, full of wealthy urban kids. And uh, I saw a lot of streaking, not fraternity streaking, but a lot of progressive streaking in many different forms. Nudity and performative nudity have a big part in college campuses. And so the girls take part in a naked run. It's sort of overshadowed by the fact that there's a huge snowstorm, but that kind of brought me back also to college where uh, you're doing a lot of stuff, trying to wear very little in very cold weather. What do we make of the body image 
and nudity in this episode. They're sort of juxtaposing Bella's radical self-love with fraternity culture. My question is, did we go to college together? Because you are absolutely <laughs> describing the kind of hippy-dippy, crunchy-ass school that I went to, which in a lot of ways I really loved, in a lot of ways was a really weird environment. But I think you're so right in that it's such a outsized way to perform and act some of these ideals that I think some of these girls, especially Bella, are starting to understand and encapsulate for the first time. It's like, well, I'm this like sex positive, free young girl who's in college and I'm going to fuck whoever I want. And the way I can like express this as fully as possible is to run around my college naked It's interesting just to talk about the generational thing because, you know, I was in college over 10 years ago and we didn't really have the same conversation we're having culturally right now about like body positivity or body neutrality or like we've kind of moved beyond the discourse of just like it's feminist to love your body. I think now we're in a moment where it's sort of like. Well, it's also feminist to just be like, this is my body. That's it. I don't need to love my stretch marks. I don't need to love every aspect of what I look like physically and what it actually means for me to have self-respect and love for my body is maybe for me to sometimes take the focus and the onus off of forcing myself to love parts of myself that maybe I don't and growing more distant from it in that way. And so it was interesting. It made me think about like, well, what are these girls talking about or like what is the conversation on their campus are they having conversations like that or are they talking about fat phobia something that I feel like wasn't really spoken about that much when I was in college and now I think is like a huge part of our feminist discourse in a way that I think is really powerful what do you think of the body representation on this show I waffle myself in whether or not they're representative because there's a lot of diversity there's representation of disability of lots of different race and class And uh, not all of the four main characters have, you know, size zero to two bodies, but it's still within a frame. I don't think there are really any characters on the show who are fat. And that seems like a problem. I'm just reflecting on like the point about having moved past body positivity on its face. And I think that's part of why the depiction to me does feel like an older generation looking at a younger generation. What isn't represented in this show for all the underwear runs and casual hookups is like, yeah, the choice to, you know, abstain, like in a way that is really self-determined. There is not really a choice in this show to engage in sort of any kind of alternative sexual or relationship orientation like we don't see a poly relationship from what I can tell or like really anything open at all we see like people who are dating non-exclusively but there's always an implication that they would become exclusive or stop seeing each other we don't really see a lot of just like juggled open dating maybe again we will see that this season I was thinking that too when Bella and her friends are starting the women's comedy magazine. There was no talk of gender binary. There's no talk of gender neutrality. It's very much there's the male dominated literary humorous magazine and then there's a new one and it's for girls. That seems inaccurate to today's college campuses because from all I read in sensational headlines, gender is the number one topic on campuses. Well, and it's very hetero when all of Gen Z is gay. We all know that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent transition. (laughs) The one, you know, main queer character on this show is, of course, Leighton. And it feels like they put her in a box where she had to check like every normative mainstream identity category so that she could be gay. Like she's like a busty, blonde, wealthy white woman who is like ashamed deeply, but just can't help this one thing that like makes her different. And I think that's like a really funny choice for this character. I really don't have a specific question about this, but just like Leighton, discuss, like she's come out in this episode. How do you feel about that? Counterpoint to the the show had to set her up as the most privileged version. I looked at it as that's the only way to make it realistic that she's not out yet or that she would care about coming out on a college campus. They had to set her up as coming from such a conservative background and such an elite self-aware person. Because otherwise, someone coming to a college campus and hooking up with girls, like, who cares? Actually, there is something that I've been meaning to tell you guys. 
I'm gay. Wow, Lane, that's awesome. Should we hug? I feel like we should hug. I think I have some qualms about this storyline and this character, and I'm trying to articulate what they are. I think on the one hand, there are a lot of more recent cultural depictions in TV and movies of young queer people where like the coming out aspect of their lives and stories is sidelined, which I think is great. I think that has taken precedence for a long time. And now I think we have stories that are more focused on like, okay, what is it actually like to live in your queer identity as a young person? And what are those struggles? And how do you navigate the relationships and sort of everything that comes after your coming out moment? And so I did feel like it was a little bit tired just in that way of of course, lots of people still struggle to come out, but that's also something we've seen on TV time and time again. For me also, the relationship struggle though that she faced in season one was an interesting one, one that many, many queer people navigate, which is I'm not totally ready to be fully out. I'm still figuring out what this means for me and I deserve to do that on my own timeline. And yet my partner also deserves to be with someone who is ready to be out in the world with them and celebrate that relationship. And so I think that was the part of the story that was the most interesting. And I think now that Leighton is out, I'm curious to see like what her relationship is going to be like to coming out in terms of illustrating and living in her queer identity. I don't think that she's going to be like the hippie granola queer girl that she dated in season one. I think she is going to be a different kind of character, which is great. And I'm excited to see that. And I would like to see her be in a full relationship, one that she wants to be in that pushes her to be ready to be that out person and to explore that with her family. And I'm excited to see where that takes her. Yeah, I miss the character she first took up with in season one, only because that made the Leighton character sort of the straw man and the other woman was constantly calling her out on her shit. And it made it easier to like Leighton because you could see more of her struggle. She was struggling. She had feelings for that other woman, but she couldn't get past herself and her own insecurities. Now, I don't see that tension. I do like, though, how they're setting her up as checking people out at a frat party, just like a woman checking out a man. The sexual chemistry with the woman who she sort of blows off at the party and then slides into her DMs. Was that this episode? Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. That, to me, is more like college hookups than some of the other representations. I also really want to see her have some queer friendships. Like, we only really see her interact a lot with the, you know, the queer woman that she was secretly dating, but actually having queer community would do a world of good for her and would be able to provide her a certain kind of support that her straight friends obviously can't give her. So that's also something that I really hope is coming down for her this season. I want that for all of them. Like, I want them to not be the onlys in their friend group. Like, in some ways, the friend group holding the entertainment together is kind of keeping them all a little bit isolated, but we'll just put that to the fourth wall and like keep it moving. I have a surprise question for both of you before we go to our cringe fire. It's short. How would you describe the politics of this television show in one sentence or less? Lacking. <laughs> Surface. <laughs> I was going to say lukewarm. Mm. Love it. The thing that I keep thinking about in watching this show, you know, my mom's a professor. We moved twice during junior high and high school. So I grew up on three different college campuses. And I spent most of high school on a very large state school campus that had a huge football team and a huge Greek life presence. And so that really guided where I looked for schools. I was looking for the opposite. I did not want anything to do with fraternities, in part because growing up, I thought of fraternities as such a violent and oppressive system. I used to tell people I live in a small town, the main crime is rape. We went to a lot of frat parties in high school. If I was walking home at night, the college circulator van to drive college students home when they were drunk would stop and try to convince me to get in the van because they didn't want a teenage girl walking around the town alone at night. And I'd say, look at me, (laughs) I'm 16. You want me to get into the van with a bunch of drunk 20 year olds? I'm walking. This is my own bias that I have such a negative, aggressive, violent, nauseous feeling about the Greek system, only reinforced by national headlines over the years. And this is such a Disney representation of Greek life. 
Did you guys interact with fraternities at all in college? I didn't at all. I went to like a school that was basically a commune in the woods of Massachusetts that like was, was it Hampshire. Yeah. <laughs> I that went to was, Sarah Lawrence. You know, so we did have yeah. similar certain yeah. You know, it's like been the same since like the early 70s. And so I consider myself very lucky to have not grown up around any type of Greek life. It was very foreign to me and seemed honestly scary and fucked up and weird. Yeah, I think like I would love to see the show just go a level deeper in all of the really important issues that they're starting to explore, you know, sexual violence queer identity, class politics. It's almost there. Like we've started the conversation. Let's go through the door. What I do love about the show though, is that it is super like light and bubbly. It's very warm. Given the warmth of the show, the warmth of the politics does not surprise me. It's true. Lori, do you have a hot take on the politics of the show before we cringe fire? No, I mean, I think you all nailed it. Like Mindy Kaling, especially kind of has a track record around this. Like she made a whole show about being a freaking OBGYN and the politics of that show were kind of like trash. A show I also watched, but it was all about like which white man she would end up with. And it was not at all about like reproductive health, which I think is a thing. And it makes me really just long for more voices like more storytellers who have the depth to like not make us choose one or the other like I think we could have like a show that feels like very funny and warm and still like is connected to real world issues that is my belief I don't think you have to choose Senti, now it's time for our rapid fire end of episode series, The Cringe Fire. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. (laughs) Is there another show that you're binging right now? Oh, my God, you guys. I just binged The Mole. Have you heard about this? Ooh, The reality show? Yes. It's Netflix, right? They're constantly pushing it on me, but I've not taken the plunge. It's like Survivor meets Squid Game meets The Amazing Race. And I think while I have really enjoyed all of the Netflix trash reality dating shows, I think this one that's very much like a psychological warfare competition type situation is really, really thrilling and fun in a different way. I was literally on the edge of my seat There's a crew of like 14 people and they have to do all these challenges and they can win this big pot of money at the end that one person wins. But there's one person amongst all of them that's the mole who's actively sabotaging the whole game. It's really, really good. I highly recommend. Well, fun fact, that show came out as I was leaving college and the original host was Anderson Cooper. What? Yeah, that's how I know that show. I've never seen that show. I just know that it's sort of this, uh, it was a precursor to other trash TV Anderson Cooper would take part in. Okay, I'm really excited now. Thank you for telling me this right before a long weekend. I'm just going to like lounge and binge. Senti, what is something in the world that you're finding super cringy at the moment? Something I'm finding really cringy is the return of 2000s fashion. (laughs) I saw a teenager walk past me the other day in like low rise jeans so low (laughs) I could like see her vagina and I was like did I not live through this one time and it was enough I do not want to see the bell bottoms and I don't want to see whale tails we evolved and we got to a much better place and I don't need to go back there it was awful for anybody who wasn't 99 pounds and looking like Misha Barton it was a dark destructive time in our history and I do not want to return Even the name Misha Barton just like pushed a button in my brain. Wow. (laughs) Senti, I just want to use this moment in particular to plug your Twitter because even though Twitter is dying, you are a person whose Twitter account most resembles their real life humor. And your answer to the last question just reminded me of that. Thank you so much. I hope Elon is enjoying it in the remaining days we have. Okay, next question. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed on TV and film and media? Yes. Well, something I think I have very rarely seen portrayed is the devil's threesome. 
which is something that I would really like to see. The Devil's Threesome famously is one woman and two men. And I don't know. I'm just like every threesome I see on TV is the exact male fantasy threesome you would expect. And I would love to see a threesome where the woman is the focal point and no one comes but her. I love that. I did not know that 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 had a name. It's so infrequently portrayed. You know what they say? We need language before we can see the things that we have yet to see. That's exactly so right. Thank you for that, Senti. Appreciate you. Lastly, but not leastly, what's a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality in TV, film, or literature? I don't know if this is a favorite. Maybe it was a favorite. It's just one that I have been thinking about recently because it was so new and sort of jarring to see was I recently saw that movie, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Have you guys seen this movie? No, I saw the previews. Same previews. It basically stars Emma Thompson as this older woman who has never had an orgasm before. So she hires this young, hot male sex worker to have sex with. And the very end of the movie has this really beautiful, like intimate sex montage of the two of them. And just like to see her body, like her older woman body, like experiencing joy and pleasure and having multiple orgasms. And she's fucking this very, very hot young man who is also enjoying the experience. Like, I just don't think I've seen anything like that in a movie or TV show ever. And it was just really beautifully shot. And like the lighting was beautiful. And there's close ups on her face often. And it was just like really gorgeous sex that I've never seen depicted like that before. I guess I disassociated the title with the movie. I did see that movie and it was hot. (laughs) And that guy is hot. And he's also in this series, Bad Sisters. If you're craving a little more of him. He's so hot. He's so hot. This is Mr. Robot, right? No, he's Irish Mr. Robot, essentially. <laughs> oh, yeah. He has a really hot accent. Okay. I'm, you know what? You all have given me a lot to think about. Exactly. Santi, thank you so much. You have brought wit, humor, and uh, all kinds of insights to a conversation that went high, went low. <laughs> we couldn't have done this with anyone else. You rock, Thanks Santi. So much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you to our guest, Senti Sojwal. You can find her on Twitter at Senti, S-E-N-T-I, underscore, underscore, N-A-R-O. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. D.L. Dallas Engram created our theme song, and you can find him on SoundCloud at D.A. Dollars. You can always support our show by visiting patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. Subscribe today and get amazing perks, including a shout out right here on this very show. You can also show your love by rating and reviewing our show. We really appreciate it. And follow us at cringe watchers on Instagram and Twitter as long as it's still online. Thank you as always for cringe watching with us. 